remember Jacob Chansley? You probably remember him better as the QAnon shaman. He was the the gentleman who ran around the Capitol on January 6th with the fur and the horns and the face paint. When Mr. Chansley, the shaman, eventually struck a deal with the government, he pleaded guilty to just one count. It is a count from a statute that is titled tampering with a witness, victim, or an informant. Then there is this guy. Remember him? He's Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers. Now, the government tried nine Oath Keepers with seditious conspiracy, and six of them were found guilty of it. But all nine of them were found guilty of at least one other charge. The same charge brought against the QAnon shaman, and by the way, hundreds of other January 6th defendants. It's actually one of the most common charges the Department of Justice brought against January 6th insurrectionists overall. And again, the statute is technically titled tampering with a witness, victim, or an informant. But the QAnon shaman and all those hundreds of other January 6th defendants, they weren't actually being accused of witness tampering. They were charged with a particular section of the statute, corruptly obstructing an official proceeding basically getting in the way of Congress as it set out to certify the 2020 election by staging an insurrection. Okay, so all of this is relevant because today the three federal statutes listed in that target letter that special counsel Jack Smith sent to former President Trump, those statutes were described to NBC News by two attorneys with direct knowledge of the document. The Wall Street Journal, Rolling Stone, a bunch of places essentially have the same reporting. And that is... One of the statutes Mr. Smith has informed Donald Trump he may be indicted on has to do with tampering with a witness, just like the QAnon shaman and just like Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers. Now, we have all the descriptions of the federal, we have all have descriptions of the federal statutes in play, but we do not know what particular sections of each statute the DOJ is looking at. So that means that this tampering with a witness charge that that could be exactly what it sounds like, witness tampering. It could be a charge about how Trump's legal team allegedly tried to influence the testimony of witnesses like former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. But it could also be the same obstruction of an official proceeding section that the DOJ has used over and over again to prosecute January 6th defendants, the QAnon guy, and Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers. I mean, or it could be both. We don't know. We don't know a lot, but what we do know is this. The other two statutes in Jack Smith's target letter were described to NBC News as conspiracy to defraud the United States and the deprivation of rights. Conspiracy to defraud the United States certainly sounds like it could be referring to Trump's fake elector plot, but again, we are a little short on specifics here. And for the potential deprivation of rights charge, whose rights were deprived and how serious is a charge like that? Luckily, for both of our sakes, we are about to get some legal expert, expert legal help unpacking all of this and in just a second. Now, unlike the general public, President Trump's legal team actually knows the specifics here as far as the exact statutes that Jack Smith might charge Mr. Trump with. And that has reportedly led Team Trump to believe that the special counsel will prosecute a bigger case against Trump than they were previously expecting. So again, all eyes are on special counsel Jack Smith. Today, Mr. Smith's motorcade was spotted leaving his office at 11.35 a.m. 
It was then spotted again, leaving the federal courthouse where Smith's D.C. grand juries meet at 1.10 p.m. In between that coming and going, a grand jury was meeting. The jury broke for the day at half past noon. But here is the thing. We have no idea what that grand jury is working on. The grand jury for special counsel Smith's 2020 investigation has been meeting on Tuesdays and Thursdays. This is the kind of stuff you know when you watch this so very carefully. So what was special counsel Counsel Smith doing at the courthouse on a Wednesday? Well, could be a different grand jury. Could be a different case. I mean, if the past is prologue here, Jack Smith enjoys multitasking. More than a month after he indicted Trump in the classified documents case, we learned that the grand jury in Florida is still working. It is still investigating. It is still potentially mulling over more indictments in that Mar-a-Lago documents case. We know that Trump's co-defendant in that case, his aide, Walt Nauda, we know that Nauda didn't get a target letter until five days after Trump got his. NBC News has reached out to a number of Trump allies who were involved in Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election. And so far, we have confirmation that Rudy Giuliani and Lynn Wood and Bernie Carrick and Cleta Mitchell, Scott Perry, Kenneth Chesbrough and John Eastman, so far, we have confirmation that all of those people have not received target letters. Again, so far. Other individuals like Jeffrey Clark, who Trump tried to appoint as the acting attorney general in January of 2021 to help Trump overturn the results of the election, Mr. Clark's spokesman declined to comment. And tonight there is a particular focus on people like Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani, the lawyers in the Trump bunch. In part of a rant on his social media platform, Truth Social, Trump claimed tonight that lawyers and the legal system itself are under siege. He called that siege a gift from crooked Joe Biden, Merrick Garland, and deranged prosecutor Jack Smith. Now, who knows what Trump meant by that? But if I were a lawyer, if I were a lawyer who would help Trump try and overturn the 2020 election, I might be keeping an eye on my mailbox. Joining me now is Barb McQuaid, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, we're waiting for your shot. And also with us is the great Lisa Rubin. Do we have Lisa Rubin? Here I Thank am. You, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa Rubin, for saving my hide. Uh, Lisa, let me just first start with the, the notion that Jack Smith, who is very busy and apparently can juggle a lot, was at the courthouse today on a Wednesday, which is not traditionally when his grand juries meet. What is this signal to you? Are we making a mountain out of a molehill here, or do you think there's something significant to be inferred from that? Alex, it's hard to say, and I know that's an answer that's deeply unsatisfying both to you and our viewers. I think it means one of two things. One, Jack Smith went to hear from a witness in a grand jury that we didn't understand to be meeting today, and it's unclear whether that grand jury would have been for the election interference side of the investigation or the records investigation. The other possibility is that Jack Smith could have attended a sealed hearing having to do with some evidentiary issue in one of those two investigations and felt that it was important to be there in person. Obviously, time will tell why Jack Smith was there, but I think it was significant that he was at the courthouse. He obviously can do the bulk of his work from the special counsel's office where he can interface with the various lawyers on his team. There's no need for him to come to the court courthouse, unless there's a particular proceeding for him to observe. I think we now have Barbara McQuaid, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and of course, 
our hometown hero. Barb, let me just ask, in terms of the Jack Smith, the ongoing work of the special counsel, we were just talking with Lisa about the fact that he's back in the courthouse doing what exactly? We're not sure, but something else. You know, the, the work continues. The witnesses continue to get in, uh, testify in front of these grand juries. There is some suggestion there may be superseding indictments. I mean, my question to you is, is there any risk of prolonging the timeline here if these investigations continue and a presidential election is very much on the horizon? Yes, I think one of the things that prosecutors have to be mindful of is not to boil the ocean. You know, even in a case without an election at stake, there is a risk that as prosecutors supersede an indictment, they push off, you know, they're moving the goalposts and they're pushing off the inevitable date for the trial. There's also the concern that if the case is too complicated, it becomes too massive for a jury to understand or to try in a reasonable period of time. And so Sometimes prosecutors will forego certain charges to focus on the ones that really matter. I've experienced that in public corruption cases where you could have charged dozens and dozens of schemes. At some point, you have to say, let's pick the best and strongest evidence and go with that to make this case simple and focused and something a jury can grasp and that we can resolve in a reasonable period of time. Yeah. And I would to follow on that in terms of having a simple, focused set of charges. I mean, there are three charges that have been floated in a, in a broad sense in this target letter from Jack Smith to Donald Trump. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the one that seems the most mysterious to me, the deprivation of rights uh, charge. What what do you think that could be, Barb? And what do you think that that what is that signal in terms of Trump's potential wrongdoing and liability? Yeah, I think that's the one that is surprising all of us. You know, the other two have been kicking around for a long time. But this is a charge that has been used historically when people have been deprived of their right to vote. The statute is one that was passed post-Civil War, uh, and it targeted Ku Klux Klan members who were depriving people of their right to vote. So it could be a theory that by trying to subvert the election, Donald Trump and others were subverting the rights of voters to have their votes counted. I think there's some other theories that it might be framing Mike Pence as the victim or members of Congress as the victim. And by sticking the crowd on them, that was an effort to subvert their rights to exercise the duties that they had. But I think a better bet might be that it is framing the voters as the victims here. Is that I mean, Elisa, that that seems (laughs) both kind of old timey and novel at the same time. The deprivation of the rights being not a specific person, but just the American public writ large. Is that risky territory for the special counsel in terms of the novelty? Well, you know, Alex, it may be somewhere in between. Um, Earlier tonight, I took a look at whether others who, like Barb and me, have been focused on this investigation for some time, have looked into the deprivation of rights as a theory that could be advanced in the January 6th investigation. And indeed, a number of folks, including Donya Perry, who's been on this show, and others, wrote a report for the Brookings Institution where they said Section 18 U.S.C. 241, which is a conspiracy to deprive people of rights, could be used where the theory is not that you every American voter was interfered with, but that voters in battleground states where the fake electors were advanced, their rights would have been interfered with by convincing Mike Pence to disregard the legitimate votes of folks in those five to seven states. So it may be somewhere in between every voter in the country and something much more microscopic. 
Ah, interesting. I mean, the conspiracy to defraud the U.S. seems fairly straightforward uh, in terms of what that portends and what that actually means, Barb. But what about tampering with a witness? We spent some time at the top of the show talking about how tampering with a witness may not actually mean tampering with a witness <laughs> in this sort of singular, but that it could actually be um, it's the umbrella for a potential obstruction of an official proceeding charge. What do you think this might mean? Barb. Yeah, my, my, my guess is the target letter identifies the statutes of investigation without describing a whole lot of detail. And so the statute is 18 United States Code, Section 1512. And as you mentioned, there's an awful lot of stuff that is packed into that statute. And the title of it is tampering with a witness. So it could be that maybe Donald Trump or others uh, suggested to a witness that they not tell the truth or something like that. But it strikes me as far more likely that it is instead 1512C, which is that obstruction of an official proceeding. And so, uh, you know, and it, it can be a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. So an agreement to do something to disrupt that joint session of Congress on January 6th, which has been used again and again against many of the January 6th defendants, seems to me a much more likely strategy here. But of course, we'll have to see the indictment. And my guess is there will be things in that indictment that are not yet publicly known, which makes me very eager to read it. Yeah, well, you, me, and everyone else in America, I think, Lisa, you know, inciting an insurrection, which was cited in the January 6th final report, which was talked about in the model prosecution memo that we talked a lot about on the show earlier in this week or last week, who can know what day it is, that is not in there. And I think a lot of Americans who are incensed about what they saw unfold on January 6th are hoping to see a strong charge like the, the word insurrection in the in this in this charging document. Um, what is your assessment of of the fact that that is not apparently in the the target letter that Jack Smith sent to Donald Trump? Well, Alex, earlier you were talking about novel charges. Insurrection probably qualifies as a novel charge, not one that's used all that often. And my guess is to Barb's point earlier about not boiling the ocean. The department, I'm sorry, the special counsel's office, aided by detailees from the Department of Justice, is really trying here to come up with a streamlined theory of the case based on statutes that they've used again and again, where there is a history and not some novelty so that they can say with a straight face, this is not that complicated of a case. They have a small group of defendants, I would guess, and a fairly small number of charges and ones that they've used before again and again with success so that they can sort of eliminate um, as many unknowns as possible as they're going forward with this case, knowing that this defendant is going to be hellbent on delaying and obfuscating as much as he can for as long as he can up until the November 24 election and perhaps beyond. Yeah, I mean, to talk about the sort of judiciousness with, with which the special counsel's office has approached this, Barb, it's noted that in the three charges we heard about in this target letter, none of them seem to suggest that the feds would have to prove that Trump knew he was lying when he claimed the election was stolen, which at this hour seems to be his entire defense. I didn't know the election was stolen. Therefore, I wasn't lying. Therefore, it wasn't criminal. I mean, do you see a workaround here in the charges that uh, Mr. Smith's office has has chosen, Barb? Yeah, you know, when it comes to conspiracy to defraud the United States, I think you're going to have to show that he knew that the fraud was the false claim that the election was stolen. So I don't know that they're going to be able to work around that. You know, with obstruction of an official proceeding, I don't think you have to know that you actually w lost the election there. It just anything that you do to disrupt that proceeding is sufficient. Uh, and maybe even the civil rights claim 
uh, the deprivation of rights. It, it's enough that you tried to subvert the process. And so maybe that is the workaround, that if they fail to prove that Donald Trump actually knew that he had lost the election, there may be a way for a jury to reach uh, a verdict of guilty on those other two counts without even finding that's the case. It, you know, it happens all the time in obstruction of justice charges. A person might say, but I'm innocent. So I told the person to lie for me. Um, the fact that you're innocent is great, but the part that you where you told them to lie for you is still a crime. So uh, it may be that this is a strategic call by Jack Smith to avoid having to prove that Trump actually knew he had lost the election. Um, Lisa, I know I'm going to ask you the impossible, um, <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway. We know that there were three weeks between when uh, Trump received his target letter for the Mar-a-Lago documents case and when um, the DOJ actually uh, charged him, actually uh, indicted him. And, and I, one wonders whether you think that we're looking at a similar time frame here, given the fact that Fannie Willis seems to be waiting in the wings in fewer than three weeks to announce her own potential indictments of the former president. You know, Alex, it's impossible to say, as you acknowledge. I think we're probably working on a little bit shorter of a time frame here. Ironically, the person who brought in the wrap-up witness last time, lawyer Stanley Woodward, who was with Taylor Budowich in Miami, is also the lawyer for the person we understand to be testifying tomorrow to the grand jury, former White House aide Will Russell. Does that suggest we're at the end? Not necessarily, but we're certainly getting close to it. I'll be looking for signals that Trump's lawyers are sitting down with the special counsel's office in their last-ditch effort to persuade them not to bring charges. And that may be when we know the end is really near. The end is really near. And yet it keeps going on, doesn't it? Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and our great MSNBC legal analyst, Lisa Rubin. Ladies, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts this evening. Thanks, Alex. Thank you, Alex. When we come back, the news of a looming federal indictment for the leader of their party has landed among Republicans down here in Washington. That news has landed with a thud. We're going to get reaction from Senator Elizabeth Warren and my MSNBC colleague Jen Psaki. Stick around. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit MSNBC slash app to download. News of a possible third criminal indictment for Donald Trump has not exactly prompted a lot of soul searching among Republicans here in Washington. Instead, it has been more like wagon circling. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy suggested yesterday that the government is targeting Trump to take him out of the 2024 presidential race. And Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene had some choice words, calling the news absolute bull, that's a euphemism, and saying the charges were ridiculous. Trump, of course, has not been charged over January 6th. But in the Senate, that bastion of level-headedness and deliberation, the reaction to a possible indictment has been met with either silence 
or criticism of the potential indicters rather than the indicted? I've said every week out here that I'm not going to comment on the various uh, candidates for the presidency. I think another indictment of President Trump uh, will, is even more devices for the country. Donald Trump said repeatedly, protest peacefully, protest peacefully. The idea they're going to indict him uh, for contributing to the violence on January 6th, I think is ridiculous. Joining me now is Senator Elizabeth Warren from the great state of Massachusetts. Senator Warren, thank you such, so much for joining me in person here in Washington, D.C. Good to be here. I, I, want, I want to hear about the scuttlebutt in the Senate now that we have news of a potential third indictment. The public posture of Republicans is to criticize the Department of Justice mm-hmm. or to say nothing. Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense in the hallways that this is actually affecting them, that there may be some sense nope. of chagrin, remorse, they got nothing. nothing to say. Absolutely nothing. Did not happen. Wow. And do you think, I mean, I guess the playbook has been whenever there are explosive allegations leveled against a Republican or a conservative, it is to not talk about the substance of the allegation, but to talk about the either the leakers or the government body or the institution, but not really address the substance. Do you think that is a strategy they can pursue for the entirety of the, let's for example, say the elections? Yes, actually, I do think it's a strategy they can pursue the entire time. They have so much practice at it. And they are so good at it. They just have constructed an alternative reality where it's not about what really happened on January 6th, what they experienced, what we experienced. It's really about, nope, we all have read now the same story and we're all going to stick to that story and just answer consistent with the story. It, it just, I know at the risk of sounding naive about this, I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the, the 2020 race, previous races in American history where members of the same party could disagree mm-hmm. with each other, mm-hmm. where they could, in fact, level criticisms at one another. Do we have the sound, uh, the, the amazing sound from when you were running for president mm-hmm. and Michael Bloomberg entered the race? Can yes. we play this sound, please, just as an example of what can happen sometimes? I am very proud of the fact that about two weeks ago, we were awarded, uh, we were voted the uh, most, the the best place to work, second best place in America. (laughs) If that doesn't say something about our employees and how happy they are, I don't know what does. Senator Warren, you've been critical of Mayor Bloomberg on this issue. Yes, I have. And I hope you heard what his defense was. I've been nice to some women. has to stand on his record. And what we need to know is exactly what's lurking out there. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? I, re- I mean, I remember being in the press room for that debate. <laughs> My jaw was on the ground. But, you know, it was a substantive. I bet it is. It was a super substantive, really important exchange. Mm-hmm. What you brought up is something that the Democratic electorate at least really was interested in and needed to hear. How is it that that can only happen? It seems like on the Democratic side of the aisle, there's no internal questioning in the Republican Party at this point. You know, I- I actually do think there is a difference here, and that is on the Democratic side. I'm not going to say we are perfect by any stretch, but there really is a disciplining effect, not just from the leaders, 
but people. So we get things wrong. We make mistakes. We say things that turn out that when you do the fact check, it's not that way. But the answer immediately becomes from the people who follow us, from the people who are part of us, to say, you got that wrong. And so things that aren't true don't get the same kind of long, long lifespan. We don't go out and say somehow that by repeating it enough, we will make it true. We will bend. Remember the old spoon benders? We will bend reality to our will. That for all of our faults, I do believe that what Democrats are trying to do is deal with a real world, Mm -hmm. trying to help people really, and trying to hold themselves to a standard of let's at least keep trying to get it right and talking about the things that will affect that reality and what we can do. It increasingly feels like on a host of issues, that holds true, right? That that Democrats are intent on solving actual real world world problems. Real world problems. And and, and Republicans are intent on standing on sort of ideology and, and, and creating sort of litmus tests. I mean, and the example I'd point you to is Senator Tommy Tuberville, right? Here he is, effectively blocking nominations in the military out of a a sort of ideological fight about abortion provisions and abortion payment for abortions in the U.S. military. The idea is that the U.S. military must change its policy on women's reproductive freedom in order for the military to staff up appropriately. That's right. So remember what this is. The Department of Defense has said that if a member of the active duty military who has been stationed in a place where uh, they cannot get access or their immediate family cannot get access to reproductive rights, uh, reproductive services that they need, then the military will say you can take time and go to another place and we will help pay for travel. That's it. That's all they're doing. When you get there, you got to pay for it yourself. But we will at least make this possible. And we heard today in the Senate Armed Services Committee testimony that about 40 percent of the women who are serving in the military right now live in state. I'm sorry, not live, have been stationed in states that have a very limited access to abortion services and to certain other services that they may need, for example, in the aftermath of a miscarriage. So this is the the, the, the policy the Department of Defense has put in, uh, an inclusive, important policy, and Senator Tuberville doesn't like it. Okay, yeah. I understand that. There are lots of policies I don't like, but his response has been, now for months, to stop the promotion and assignment of the top officers in the military, all of whom have to be approved by the Senate in order to take their posts. The consequence is we now have more than 250 people who are blocked. We will soon, if this keeps up, have no head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, We don't have the commander of the 7th Fleet, of the 5th Fleet, uh, Cyber Command, uh, the U.S. Marines for the first time in its history, has no permanent person in charge. And you can go all the way through. These are people who have served their country honorably. And what former defense secretaries, as well as our current defense secretary, on the former, both Republican and Democrat have said, this is undermining national security. This is undercutting military readiness and 
what the, the officers themselves say is it's not just about us. It's all those mid-level ranks and junior ranks, partly who look at this and say, political football, I can't, I can't get, I, I don't want to stay around Wow. this. So this costs us, and it costs us every day that it goes on. Well, and it's, it's the U.S., this is a Republican holding up the U.S. military yep. affecting its readiness on an issue that, by the way, is absolutely terrible politics yes. for Republicans in yes. terms of their 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 extreme stance on reproductive freedoms. Yes. And yet, where are those Republicans? Who's speaking out and saying he has got to put a stop to this? And now tie it back to democracy. We voted in the Senate Armed Services Committee. You know, we just put together the military budget. I sit on this committee. I'm the head of the personnel subcommittee on this. So the Republicans introduced an amendment to change that particular policy on access to reproductive health care. And it lost. This is we we had the vote in the committee and, and it, it lost. lost. Now, in a democracy, when we have a vote and the majority says, nope, we ratify the policy. The policy as it is, is what we here in the Senate want to see. Not good enough for Senator Tuberville to back off and say, I may not like it, but this is how it works in a democracy. It is fundamental. I mean, and, and you can apply that lesson and that position to a number of issues that the Republicans have had to deal with, including mm-hmm. the 2020 election. I mean, yep. it is fundamentally anti-democratic, the position yep. that's being staked yep. out here. Yep. Um, Senator Warren, I live in New York City, but I like coming to Washington, D.C. because it means a chance to sit down and chat with you about many things. Unfortunately, we are out of time for this segment, but thank you so much for your time and your patience up on Capitol Hill. We are deeply appreciative. It's so good to see you, Alex. Let's do it again. Please do. Still to come this evening, what happens when you spend the better part of three years telling your party not to trust the American voting system? Turns out, Not the best outcome for a party that wants to win an election using the American voting system. We will explain. Plus, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez weighs in on the House Republicans' defense of Donald Trump. That is next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. We are not here today, unfortunately, because the facts have brought us here. We are here today because Donald Trump is exerting an influence campaign in Congress when he is no longer president of the United States. 
That was Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez today blasting Republicans for weaponizing Congress to go after the Biden family while working overtime to shield former President Trump from both actual and potential federal criminal charges. In fact, after Trump announced yesterday that he'd received a target letter from the special counsel regarding that 2020 election interference, Trump called Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Republican conference chair Elise Stefanik to rally support for him among rank and file Republicans. Today, Speaker McCarthy said the call was not a strategy session, but simply a call because he speaks to Trump on a regular basis. McCarthy also told reporters he doesn't think prosecutors can criminally charge Trump because the former president did nothing wrong. It is unclear if Speaker McCarthy remembers ever saying that Trump bears responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Joining me now is Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary and host, of course, of Inside with Jen Psaki right here on MSNBC. Jen, it's such a delight to see you. Welcome to Washington, Thank Alex. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> um, I got to ask, I mean, there's so many reasons to be alarmed by what is happening in the Republican Party. But on a a scale of one to 10, how much does it concern you that Trump literally seems to be calling in favors to Republicans in Congress and they seem thus far to be doing his bidding? And they want to please him. Yeah. They want him to call them. Uh, They want to be on his good side. Um, Yeah, it's deeply concerning, Alex, to, to state the obvious. I mean, and I think if you look at the hearing today, as evidence of this, right? They they are so wrapped around an axle of how they're talking about the potential indictment of Donald Trump, which is worth repeating yes. around not just an insurrection on our Capitol that they all work in every day, but also an effort to overturn the will of the American people they all represent. That is what is happening right now or potentially happening or could happen soon. At the same time, they are bending themselves over backwards to try to come up with a whistleblower who is viable uh, to try to go after Joe Biden to kind of mince things together and make it all confusing. That's concerning, in part because it's very political and politicized, but also because they're in charge of the House of Representatives and they should be doing the work of the American people. Well, and it also, it sort of does not foreclose the possibility that depending on what happens in any of these federal criminal indictments, there is going to be comeuppance, if you will, on the part of House Republicans who are going to effectively, truly weaponize the federal government to go after what they see as their perceived group of enemies, which is Merrick Garland, Joe Biden, and Jack Smith. I mean, do you think it's a foregone conclusion that all of those folks are going to see impeachment proceedings or some other extreme alarmist reaction to whatever happens in the criminal trials? And and let's not forget that this is, it's been a long week, but a lot has happened. (laughs) It's Wednesday. Uh, But, uh, Earlier this week, there was an eye-popping story in the New York Times about what Trump intends to do as president, right? Which is to take control of all independent agencies of government, essentially, coalesce control under his own power. That means self-pardoning himself if needed. It also means being able to bend the will of agencies that have a huge impact on the economy, go after political enemies. He's basically announcing this is what I want to do as president. And people in the party are saying, we're with you and right. we want to do that now. A plus, let's go. Exactly. I mean, I think not to be um, not to be alarmist in my own stead, but th- people wonder how democracy ends when people who are potentially guilty of multiple federal crimes of subverting democracy have a party that is complicit in their future plans to further erode democracy and our American dem- democratic institutions. That's how American democracy ends. I mean, it's like literally being foretold in public and no one in the Republican Party seems willing to stop it. 
That's exactly right. And they're fearful of their own political futures. That's what this is about. If you were sitting here with Kevin McCarthy, I don't know him well, I will admit, I don't think he would say, uh, if you were not on camera, that Donald Trump had nothing to do with January 6th or with overturning the will of the American people. He would not say that because that's not what he has said previously. Many of them would not say that. And that's not what they say privately. That tells you a lot about why they're doing this. Yeah. Well, that's maybe even the worst part of it all, right? Jen, please hang here with me here in Washington. I'm here. I live here. (laughs) You sure do. (laughs) Because up next, the Republican Party push to get voters back to the polls early gets a great big shove from Donald Trump. Just one of the many challenges of having a twice indicted frontrunner who can't help himself or apparently his own party. Stay with us. You might think that if you were the target of a special counsel's investigation into your efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, you, you might think that you would be careful about what you said in public on the subject of, say, I don't know, election fraud. But if you did that, then you would not be Donald Trump. Last night, Donald Trump appeared on Fox News at a town hall with Sean Hannity. Mr. Hannity was trying to get the former president to signal to his supporters that, in spite of everything Trump has done since 2020 to undermine public faith in American elections, that voting early or voting by mail is actually okay. Do you now encourage and embrace early and voting, voting by mail and legal ballot harvesting? I do, but I also have to say something else, because the one thing a lot of people, but this is important, including you, you do. don't talk about, they also create phony ballots. And that's a real problem. That's my opinion. But they you, create but a lot of know, phony ballots. Has your mind shifted? Has your mind shifted? Please, one more time. Has your mind shifted? Hannity there just trying to get Trump back on track and off the third rail. It did not go well. Will you encourage your voters, based on the system we have, to go along with the system of early voting and voting by mail? Because I I I think if you don't, it's a big mistake. No, no, no. I will. But those ballots get lost also, Sean. You know, they send them in and all of a sudden they're gone. Those ballots get lost also. The answer is I will because you would like it. But you well, know what? Can I be honest? For me. Okay. But a lot of, I got to take a break. But Sean, a lot of bad things happen to those ballots also. I got to take a break. This guy's not helping out. Trump cannot help himself. And while that exchange seems bad for Trump, considering that he was doubling and tripling down on election fraud conspiracies in public on television hours after revealing that he is now officially a target of another Jack Smith investigation— As bad as it was for Trump, it is also a Republican Party nightmare. This, after all, is the hangover from the 2020 election, the one where Republicans lost faith in voting in general and absentee and early voting in particular. And that reality is clashing with this other reality. The Republican Party needs people to vote a lot by many means in order to win in 2024. So at the national level, the RNC recently, unironically, unveiled a new campaign to encourage Republicans to bank your vote, which encourages voting by absentee and mail-in ballots. At the state level, Republican Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin has unveiled a Secure Your Vote initiative, and the Republican Party of Ohio is launching a campaign to say, it's okay to vote that way. Again, both of these initiatives are meant to convince Republicans that mail-in and absentee ballots are okay. 
So the Republican Party has begun to realize that the whole ballot fraud idea is electoral suicide. But apparently its head, Donald Trump, has not. We will have much more on that when my friend and colleague Jen Psaki returns to join me right here at this table. Coming up next. If, as expected, special counsel Jack Smith indicts Donald Trump in the next few days, it will be his third indictment so far this year. And we are only halfway through 2023. And thus far, Trump's strategy here appears to be blame the other party. On Truth Social, Trump announced today that Democratic prosecutors waited years, years to bring charges so that they could interfere with the 2024 presidential election. For the record, special counsel Jack Smith has been working on this case for a little over eight months. Back with us to decipher what this all means is my friend and colleague, Jen Psaki. Jen, I mean, what is the appropriate Democratic response to this line of attack. Can I just say first, when you were reading that, what it reminded me of is what Vladimir Putin did at the beginning before the war in Ukraine started, yes. Yes. which was to project and say the Ukrainians are attacking us as if if you say it, it's it will make true. It true. Um, you know, I think the Democrats, there's a little bit of a split view on this, which is apparent in public, right? You look at the party committees, the DNC is not talking about the specifics of the investigations. The DCCC is, the White House is not. Now, I do think that as does that reflect a, I mean, like, does that reflect a different political reality at the like at the congressional level versus the national level? Do you think? Well, at the congressional level, you're just much more into what's in your district. Yeah. Right. And fighting hand to hand combat in some ways, verbal combat, of course, I mean. I think this will change once the election uh, gets closer. Now, and just remember how Joe Biden ran for president in 2020, the heart of the nation, the soul of the nation. There's a way to harden the contrast with Trump without talking about the specifics mm. of the investigations. And he's going to have to do that. And I'm certain he will do that, which is there's one presidential candidate, one president who's going to stand up for democracy, mm -hmm. who's going to stand up and protect the classified secrets of our country. There's one president who's going to stand up for the values and the rule of law. That's me. That's a contrast right there. And you can harden it and do it more. But uh, I expect they will do it. They're just not going to. And he's not going to talk about the specifics of the case because he's an institutionalist. Yeah. And that is what tradition has been for a long time for a reason. I guess I just wonder, is that more of a complicated needle to thread to say, I am the person that stands for institutional integrity. And yet these institutions are operating completely independent of me. Right. Like, is that the complicating factor here? Because he can't look like he's involved in this. He isn't involved in it. But he also wants to say, Say this sort of responsive um, protection of democracy is the work of my administration. That is true. But remember, a lot of what Trump has done was in the light of day. A lot of what he's still saying is acknowledging things he did in the light of day. Yeah. And the pre President Biden can draw the contrast by calling out the values and talking about what he stands for versus what Trump stands for. And that is, remember, that's how Democrats did better than expected, yeah. in part, in the midterm elections, is standing up for democracy against the ones who denied it. Okay, well, nobody's going to confuse the two candidates. We know that for sure. Jen Saki, it is such a delight seeing you anywhere. Come back to Washington. Yeah, all the time. Eh, not sure about that. I'll come visit you in New York. Okay, there you go. we'll do that. Host of Inside with Jen Saki, which of course airs Sundays at noon on MSNBC. It is appointment television. Thank you, my friend, for joining me tonight. That is our show for this evening. 